welcome to The Dirt. On this show, we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. I am your host, Brian Powell. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Uh, I think we've got a great show. You're going to hear from an environmental justice pioneer and civil rights icon uh, about insight on how we can make positive change and, and what it takes to combat environmental racism and other forms of injustice in today's political environment. Stay tuned for that. We are also going to speak with Dr. David Staley, whose research team journeyed into a remote swamp in eastern North Carolina and discovered one of the oldest trees in the world. We will find out how he found it, how long it's been alive, and what it can teach us about how the climate has changed over many, many years and what we are doing to the climate as recorded in the trees. But right now we have in studio with us Lisa Sorg, environmental journalist with North Carolina Policy Watch. Welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot, Brian. So at the end of April, Policy Watch published a special report uh, titled Unregulated, Untested, and Unknown. It was a two-part, kind of two-and-a-half parts. Um, it was based on months of investigative reporting by you on a very important topic. Just quickly in a sentence, summarize what it's about for us. A plastics plant in Fayetteville, North Carolina, ships wastewater sludge from its plant to a compost facility, and the sludge had astronomical amounts of a cancer-causing chemical called 1,4-dioxane, and we don't want it in compost. Yes, because where does that compost go? It goes on gardens. It goes on fields. It's also used for structural fill in playgrounds and uh, soccer fields and golf courses, basically everything that we touch. So that was a fundamental thing that I learned from reading your piece was that there are these kind of big, giant composting companies that take waste materials from all of these different industries. There's the poultry industry sending them stuff. You've got, uh, you know, wood stuff, peanuts, all kind of just anything. You know, they're kind of collecting all this waste and then it sounds like they're just mixing it all together and they create dirt kind of fill this composty stuff that we put in all the places that you just named really really interesting uh we'll get into who should be responsible for what goes into that stuff because like you say like you discovered there is one four dioxane in this compost which is going on playgrounds and everything else so I guess first things first, what is 1,4? I think we've talked about it on the show before, but what, what is it? What's 1,4-dioxane and why is it so concerning? Well, 1,4-dioxane is a man-made, human-made chemical. It's not naturally occurring. In this case, it is a byproduct of the plastics manufacturing. Uh, this plant in Fayetteville ma manufactures um, plastic bottles or materials that are used in plastic bottles. And so 1,4-dioxane is a byproduct of that. It is not regulated by the federal government or the state because it's what's known as an emerging contaminant, which means that its risks are being assessed uh, to the health, public health and environment, but they haven't promulgated a rule yet. Uh, We've seen that with Gen X and perforated compounds. Yes, that it's kind of very well. similar, very similar to that. So this is kind of the Wild West on, on of chemicals. They do know that it is a likely carcinogen, if not, pro, you know, for sure, in animal tests and in some human studies. So it's not something that we want in our drinking water, in our sludge. It is a very big problem in North Carolina, especially in the Cape Fear River Basin. And that's because there's a lot of industry that discharges this legally into the Cape Fear. 
Yeah, and this is uh, the facility that we're talking about here uh, is, what, what's the name of the company? It's called DAC Americas, DAC. and its main headquarters is in Charlotte, but it's owned by a company out of Mexico. Okay, and the facility is in Fayetteville, or is that? That's, that's Fayetteville, right. Which is close to uh, Kim Wars and yes. in the Gen X production that, that comes from there. And I know uh, you, uh, you you spoke with Detlef Kanapi, who's um, a expert in all of these kinds of things. I know that he has in the past said that this is more concerning to him than Gen X and some of these other things because of the health concerns that you just listed. Um, what I mean, I guess, so the, the essentially what, I, what I've gleaned from this is that the company is in the process of uh, making their stuff for the plastic bottles. They've got all this waste. They send it to McGill Composting. Right. Um, and they also send wastewater, or companies like them also send wastewater to treatment plants as well, wait, uh, water treatment facilities as well, correct? So right. uh, we've got kind of this stuff with 1,4-Dioxane. Do they know that there's 1,4-Dioxane in it when they're sending it out to places? Well, they know that they generate 1,4-Dioxane because they self-report it to the EPA. So they know it's there. Does McGill Composting, when it is coming into the facility, do they know that the stuff that they're taking in contains 1,4-Dioxane? Well, they wouldn't say whether they knew or not, but they're supposed, they are responsible for testing their material and also um, assuring that the feedstock, which that's what that waste that comes into the composting facility is, is meets regulation. However... Ding, ding. There are no regulations on 1,4-Dioxane. So I think DEQ right now is trying to work with both sides of this waste stream saying, you know, we really don't want this out in the environment. Even though there's not a regulation, we need to think about how to dial this back. What are they testing for? They test for things like metals, like arsenic and lead, which, you know, you don't want in your compost either. There's a good reason for that. They test for bacteria, things that could make people sick. So there are things that they test for that are that are necessary, but it's a very narrow band of contaminants and is in no way scientifically caught up with all the things that we know that could be wrong with it. But the very fact that they're testing it suggests that they know there's kind of an intimate human contact with these materials that could cause a problem if there's something problematic in the compost. Right. So if we know that there's another thing that is likely to cause a problem, then this, it probably ought to be tested for in here. Um what, so it's not regulated at the federal level, and I, I take it it's not regulated on the state level? No. Uh, the, what? There's nothing. I mean, there are possible, you know, recommendations, but there, the EPA has not regulated it. We've known about 1,4-Dioxane even longer than we've known about Gen X, but yet there's no real movement on it. It's a really bad actor, and yet this is something that we come into contact with every day. You report that um, the Department of Environmental Quality has done their own sampling of some uh, of the sludge from from this company. Uh, did the have the results been returned on that? Not yet. Public? I think well, not yet. I think they've returned, but they're undergoing quality. They, they do a quality control review and all that sort of thing. But I should know soon. So, what is uh, you know, <laughs> what is the what's the composting industry's? Well, I guess what's but what's the chemical a plastics manufacturer response to to kind of this report or, or, or these concerns from, you know, advocates? And, and what is the composting industry's response to this? Well, I think the composting industry was caught a little, under, at least the representative I talked to, which is from the U.S. Composting Council, which ironically is based in Raleigh, 
it they, they um, have a, a strong feeling that PFOS, the perfluorinated compounds in Gen X, need to be tested for in terms of the feedstock should not be uh, contaminated with that. They could not speak to 1,4-Dioxane. It seemed like they had not really considered that that was a possibility. And so hopefully this is now on their radar, but they had taken a stand on PFOS, but not 1,4-Dioxane. Yeah, and that suggests to me that it's media coverage that is what is driving their decision-making process. That representative also, though, uh, it sounded from the comments that they made that they they want someone else to take responsibility for the presence of this in their products. They don't want the composting facilities companies to have to be the ones testing the stuff. Right. They want the companies that are sending the stuff in to test for it. But the companies that are sending the stuff in don't want to have to be responsible for how the compost, because somebody's got to pay for that testing. Right. And they also have to pay in case they find something really bad. So everybody wants to walk away. And they, they, the representative from the composting folks suggested the EPA should make a, you know, a rule regulation related to this. We know that right now that's not ever going to happen. Um, I, I, I think it's remarkable, though, that they don't want to take responsibility for that. They could easily include a provision in their contracts that requires, you know, the other party to do the testing before they brought it into their facilities. So I want to t- talk about... Um, this the the wastewater treatment aspect of this too because uh, you know a lot of companies are taking their sludge to the compost places but a lot of companies are also sending wastewater from their um, you know manufacturing processes to water treatment facilities. There's one four dioxane in that as well, right? That's right. They Dac Americas does discharge a certain amount of one four dioxane into the Cape Fear. They're right on the river, and so that is the water supply for Fayetteville and a lot of places downstream. And legally, they're legally, allowed to do to discharge directly into the river. Right. They have to do sampling and monitoring, but there isn't necess- there is not, for example, a hard numerical number that they have to um, comply with. So when these water treatment plants then take water out of the river for the drinking water supply, that has one four dioxane in it. And we saw a spike uh, I guess it was in late March at the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority in, in the Wilmington drinking water of 1,4-Doxane. We don't know why. But starting, I believe it is in, it's in July, DEQ is requiring, I think, t- two dozen or so municipalities to start testing for 1,4-Dioxane and monitoring and re- reporting their results. because And these are all towns and cities in the Cape Fear River Basin, including the Haw River and the Deep River, which is uh, like Chatham County. Because it's such a problem, because these industries are discharging and it's getting into the water supply. And then what happens when the treat? I mean, you know, that's that's this loop, right? It goes in. The treatment facilities can't can't take it out and goes back out. One thing that struck me is that the manufacturing process that uh, DAC is is going through. They're producing. Um, I forget what P-E-T. the P-E-T. P-E-T. It's a kind of polyester. Okay. It's polyester for bottles. It's like the, you know, if you ever wore polyester, then <laughs> think about it in a plastic bottle. Well, but this is what strikes me. So they are making plastic bottles that uh, many of which will likely um, one day contain bottled water. Uh, and the process is polluting the drinking water sources of 
people in, in North Carolina and elsewhere. And so when people discover that there is 1,4-dioxane in their water, they're going to say, maybe I want to protect my family. I better start drinking bottled water, which thus increases the demand for the product whose manufacturing process creates the pollution that goes into the water in the first place. This is like my mind's exploding here. Pretty much you've scrubbed my brain right now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happens. It's almost like the, um, in some cases, the bio pharma kind of uh, vicious cycle where you make you manufacture antibiotics that then make us resistant and then we need stronger antibiotics and I mean it's it's definitely a vicious vicious cycle it's not good it's not good <laughs> and I would say that you know in addition to this whole plastic bottle issue we need to get rid of plastic as much as possible in our lives because now we know we can't recycle that plastic like we used to. Other countries don't want it. So we're having a real, in my opinion, crisis in consumption, especially with plastic. So two two other things. One, is there is there anything that if you're a consumer, and I don't know whether it's individual consumers who are purchasing the products from McGill or whether it's kind of like these big buyers who you know need massive amounts of compost or whatnot, but... If, if you're either of those parties, is there anything that you can look for that you can, is there a product that, is someone producing a product that guarantees this stuff's not in it or that bad stuff is not in their product? Well, I think you should look for organic and, and that can mean a lot of things, but especially buying compost or soil that is made only from vegetables, for example, organic vegetable waste, you know, orange rinds and that sort of thing. I think that the U.S. Composting Council is also looking for more uh, labeling to make sure that at least some things have met criteria for PFAS and things like that. You can also make your own if you have the space. The North Carolina Extension has some really good tips on how to make your own compost. But if you are required, you know, don't have the space and you go out and buy it, you can also call the company and say, I want to know what you test for you know, I, I want those results. I mean, you have the right to know that. And I want to get into the right to know things uh, in a second and talk about your process of reporting this story. Like I said, it was months long and there, a lot that went into it. Um, but before we get to that quickly, uh, what, so there are no standards currently. Is there any effort by the General Assembly in North Carolina to do something about this? Not so far, and it's middle of May, end of May, and none of the bills that have come forward so far would tackle this. Okay. Well, I'm not surprised on that one. Is there anything that the governor can do, that the Department of Environmental Quality can do about this right now without any legislative action? Well, one thing that is hopeful is that the compost rules are up for readoption this year through the Environment Man Environmental Management Commission, and they have to take public comment on those compost rules. So though I'll be writing about that when the public comment period comes open, but that should start next month. And there was a meeting earlier this month where this story was brought up, and there were con genuine concerns on behalf of the EMC members about, even though these rules don't include this right now, in the public comment process, what comes out the other side very well may. So it's possible, and I think it's really in, incumbent upon the public to comment on these rules. So I'll say, I mean, you know, I, I look at all of these stories, you know, every single day about companies polluting water and people being exposed to it, and it's outrageous to me. In this particular case, I think it's just something that 
other than the companies doing the wrong thing here. No one knows about this stuff. And, it, it you know, a report like this one that you've done is a huge first step in breaking this open and getting people and, and other industries who are connected to this to understand what's happening and what's going on. Journalism's important, uh, folks. That's the lesson here. So let's talk about the journalistic process here. It is interesting in a few different ways. First, you had kind of a tipster right. uh, from inside the the plastics manufacturing company. I can't say which which side the wastering came from because I promised this person I would never reveal their name. Okay. But they are they were on one of the sides of the wastering. Okay, I see. And um, why did you make that promise? Anonymous because sourcing. I know the person's name. I met the person. Okay. And I went to the person's house. So I felt very confident that I wasn't getting punked, <laughs> that I was having the, you know, this person was legit. This person had called me and they were worried about losing their job because they were essentially a whistleblower and they don't really have any protections. It's not like they're unionized. And so this person was very concerned about that. So that's why as long as I knew and felt comfortable verifying their identity, I did not name this person. And have you received any pushback from either editors or from, you know, the parties involved in the story about that at all? No, none. And, and you know, we did run it through legal review okay. because we just wanted to make sure everything was cool. And I didn't hear a peep from anyone in terms of, oh, we're going to sue you or you're in trouble. None of that. So we don't have too much longer, but there's a couple of important things I wanted to get to. Uh, there was another interesting decision made. Um, well, first of all, uh, I'm imagining you testing and scooping through all of this stuff in your car after you obtained a couple of quarts of this. Uh, it was which is nasty. Hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> but uh, you decided after you found the results from this uh, before the story was out to send it to the Department of Environmental Quality and other parties. Um, what what was the what was the thought process in kind of doing that before there was um, anything published? Because I felt like the public health could be at risk, and I felt an ethically bound to that. And so I sent them to DEQ. I CC'd even the, the highest ups, including the secretary. I gave them to the uh, both companies. The, neither company would talk to me, but DEQ got on it. Well, that's good. Do you have any uh, very, very quick one single tip? If you are a, an aspiring journalist or freelancer and you're trying to get into some investigative work, one thing that they should do? Talk to whoever wants to talk to you. Okay, that's a good tip. Uh, we are going to have to leave it at that. Unfortunately, there's a lot more I wanted to get to, and there's some more great work from you on ncpolicywatch.org right now. Go check it out. Lots of really interesting stuff. Um, thank you again for joining us, Lisa. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. This is WNCU-FM. We've been speaking with Lisa Sorg, environmental journalist at NC Policy Watch. We're headed to a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Dirt on WNCU-FM. If you're like me, there is something very moving about being in the presence of something, a structure, a, a natural landmark that is very, very old, that has a lot of history and story to it. Uh, recently, some scientists have discovered some very, very old natural wonders right in our backyards in North Carolina, 
and that is a cypress tree that is over two millennia old. To talk about it, we are joined now by Dr. David Staley, Distinguished Professor of Geography in the Department of Geosciences at the University of Arkansas. He has a particular aptitude for dendrochronology and for developing methods to identify the location of ancient forests, which is a very cool skill set. Dr. Staley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me what you found and what you've learned uh, over the years exploring the the dark waters of the Black River in eastern North Carolina and Three Sisters Cove. Well, Black River, North Carolina, is one of the great natural areas left in eastern North America, no doubt about it. Uh, It's open to the public. A canoe or kayak trip down the Black River is like a trip back in time. The original uh, bald cypress and bottomland hardwood forest is still largely intact. It was never logged. And there are incredibly old trees, many trees over a 1,000 years old and some over 2,000 years old, you know, in this amazing black water system that becomes braided in places and flows between sandbars, white sand, beneath these columnar giant cypress. So it's, it's a special experience. And it's clear that you have a particular affinity, love for this area. I think you've been back to it a few times, but... Just to uh, get straight to it, you've you've discovered very, very old trees, and recently you've discovered the oldest tree in eastern North America. Is that correct? Oldest known tree in no. eastern North America, yes, that's true. 2,624 years old and counting uh, from a core sample taken three meters above the uh, ground surface. So it's at least that old. Now, we didn't start out to really, you know, just find the oldest tree. Uh, We're developing tree ring chronologies from long-lived trees all over North America. And the idea is to develop chronologies of tree growth that can be exactly dated in time. Each growth ring can be exactly dated in time with dendrochronology, tree ring dating, the most accurate dating method in geochronology. And the idea is that these tree ring chronologies vary from one year to the next, from good years of growth to bad years of growth that reflect wet and dry years. So it's a technique that we use to reconstruct past climate history. That's why we went to Black River in the first place. And in the mid-80s, we found 1,000-plus-year-old trees and were astounded then. But really, it's only been lately that I've realized that this place is much larger than I realized the old growth force of Black River. They're not being appropriately managed in every case. They're still threatened. And without the efforts of the Nature Conservancy, they would probably be lost. And so we set out to try to determine how old these trees can get, you know, thinking that, you know, the discovery of super old 2,000 plus year old trees might factor in uh, to their preservation. Yeah, and I think I think that's right, and I think that's a great strategy. It's certainly getting a lot of media attention and, and public interest, um, having identified a couple of trees that are over 2,000 years old. There's something that strikes the imagination, I suppose, more than just a thousand year old tree. To me, I think that's pretty amazing as well. But uh, certainly. 
it's gotten the headlines. And we, you know, we love the Nature Conservancy on this show. We had Dr. Julie Demeester on uh, our last one to talk about floodplain management in a lot of the same geography and storm resiliency in the same geography in the context of uh, Hurricane Florence and 500-year floods. And I, I'm wondering, one, just in, in, in a normal state of affairs, how does a living organism live that long? And two, you mentioned threats. What are some of the threats uh, that face these trees? You mentioned logging, and I'm wondering, are they are they going? I, it's, clearly, they have survived ups and downs in in changes in um, you know weather events and things over the course of 2,000 years. But are they prepared to survive? You know, 500 year floods that come every five years, or you know, hurricanes like Florence, which move three miles an hour and dump an amazing amount of water. What does that What does that look like for these organisms? Well, first, let me say amplify something you said. Thousand year old trees are pretty good, right? To to find that. I mean, thousand year old trees on planet Earth are extremely rare. There's only a handful of species known to have individual trees that live that long. You know, so there's hundreds of thousand-year-old trees up and down Black River, and there are also 2,000-year-old trees. Okay, we can prove two of them, but they're not the oldest-looking trees at Black River. There's surely many trees at Black River over 2,000 years old, but when you get that old, you oftentimes begin to suffer partial heart rot, and so we can't always recover the centermost rings in order to determine how old the tree really is. But just like it's by its external appearance, we can infer extraordinary age. And in fact, I think some of the trees at Black River are likely over 3,000 years old. Now, how do they, under what conditions do they achieve such remarkable age? And, well, partly it's longevity under adversity. And this is a concept introduced by Ed Shulman, Back in the 50s, he was the discoverer of the great age of bristlecone pine uh, in the White Mountains of California. Those are the oldest continuously living trees known to exist on Earth, some of them right at 5,000 years old. And there, they live in the rain shadow of the Sierra Nevada above Death Valley in one of the most hyper-arid forest environments in the world where they are widely spaced and basically massive shrubs. There's no ground cover. There's no good habitat for insects or uh, tree-rotting fungi. Fire doesn't propagate well in that environment. And so those trees live a long time. That's quite the opposite for Black River, North Carolina, but it's a nutrient-poor, you know, acidic blackwater system that's frequently flooded. Very few... Uh, competing tree species on southern floodplains can tolerate such harsh conditions. And because of the low natural fertility on these heavily leached coastal plain sands, the growth rate is extraordinarily slow. So these are very conservative plants growing extremely slowly, and they achieve remarkable age even in the hurricane-prone environment near Wilmington, North Carolina, they have the remarkable ability to suffer terrible wind damage to their canopies. In some cases, most of the photosynthetic area can be blown away in a great hurricane, and yet bald cypress can adventitiously sprout new branchlets 
from the cambium in the upper stem of the tree and eventually grow an entirely new canopy, you know, of leaves. It's an extraordinary thing. So they've developed physiological mechanisms over the years to survive in that environment and achieve remarkable age. The threat, the greatest threat, would be humans, of course. Um, it's a valuable timber species, vault cypress. It's been heavily logged. Over 99.9% of the virgin cypress stands have been logged. But that's still quite a number. Even the fraction that remain, there's still some remarkable areas of old growth. And um, But inappropriate uses continue. There's clear felling for biomass harvesting and production uh, garden mulch from uh, bald cypress and bottomland hardwoods. There's the production of wood pellets to offset carbon credits and wood stove. There's a, a host of inappropriate uses, I would say, for thousand-year-old trees. I mean, we can grow cypress silviculturally and produce, you know, valuable products, you know, for society. But I would maintain that that probably ought not to be done in one of the most remarkable natural areas with some of the oldest trees on Earth. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about biomass and wood pellet production on the show. Uh, other forests in the southeast are being decimated by that practice. So it's uh, disheartening to hear that the bald cypress, especially these oldest ones, might be impacted by that as well. Uh, I want to talk about taking the core sample, which, as I understand, is kind of a, a pencil-sized kind of piece of wood that goes into the tree. What is that? How does that work? We use a Swedish increment bore. Uh, it extracts a five-millimeter diameter core from bark to the center of the tree. It wounds the cambium. It makes about a one-centimeter size wound in the cambium, which plants, trees can compartmentalize and close with subsequent callus growth. And so we consider it non, a non-destructive sampling technique. I mean, it's an insult to the tree, of course, but it's not a serious insult. And experiments have shown that most tree species on Earth can tolerate this sort of sampling. Uh, and so that's how we obtain the core samples. They become part of uh, the archive collections of the University of Arkansas Museum where they're available for uh, future scientific research. The value added is the dendrochronology that we perform on the prepared core, so we uh, cross-date the trees, the tree rings exactly in time, and assign the true calendar year dating to each ring. Those rings can then be measured uh, at the micron scale, and now we have uh, quantitative measurements of tree growth uh, extending back over 2,000 years. So it's extremely valuable technique for studying the history of the environment, particularly growing season precipitation. It's incredible. And yeah, I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask you where the core sample is now. Uh, you know, is it sitting in a drawer somewhere? Is it a museum available to other researchers? That's fantastic. Uh, a couple of questions. I want to get to the what you can learn from the climate history by looking at these rings. Um, but quickly first, does the does the the uh, elder individual that you identified does the tree have a name? Uh, we see many other ancient trees given you know names: Methuselah, Prometheus, etc. Pando. Are you 
Are you satisfied with BLK227, or is there something better we should be calling it? <laughs> that is its name. I mean, that's the number we've assigned at BLK for it's an alphanumeric code that we use, you know, to keep track of the, the trees that we sample at a site, in this case, Black River, North Carolina. I mean, I love that tree. I mean, BLK227, that's how I know it. Perfect. So what what kind of historical context are you learning about the climate from these from these trees that are, you know, a thousand years old, two thousand years old? Especially, I mean, you know, looking back at uh, some historical events that have taken place over the course of these trees' lifetimes, what, what's the what's the advantage? What are we learning about climate change in, in history? Well, in addition to their great age at Black River, the bald cypress are they are also one of the most precipitation sensitive tree ring sites that we've ever found in in the eastern United States. I mean, it's an amazing coincidence. We've sampled a lot of bald cypress stands, old-growth stands that are found across the southeastern United States, into central Mexico, all the way into western Guatemala. And it's great. The tree ring chronologies derived from those bald cypress stands are really extraordinarily valuable for growing season precipitation. But it's a fact that the chronology from Black River, North Carolina, is actually the most sensitive. It has the strongest correlation between the tree ring chronology and growing season precipitation totals in southeastern North Carolina. So we can use that relationship in the modern instrumental era where we have both the tree ring chronology and the recorded instrumental growing season precipitation data. We can develop a uh, statistical calibration equation between tree growth and instrumental rainfall, and we can use that equation to estimate what precipitation would have been like in prehistory based only on the ring width data. And so that's the tree ring reconstruction of growing season precipitation. We've done this. In fact, we've done it at Black River, and we've done it on a systematic basis across the continent with lots of different tree ring chronologies, hundreds of them across the continent. And it tells us all kinds of things. Drought happens, for one thing. Not only individual year droughts, but sub-decadal, decadal, and multi-decadal droughts. Uh, One of the most remarkable things that we're finding is that, in fact, it's been getting wetter, uh, especially during the warm season, uh, over eastern North America for probably at least the last 500 years. And so this is a trend in precipitation that's not well understood. It is anticipated with anthropogenic global warming that the atmosphere will hold more moisture. There'll be more precipitation, more intense precipitation. And that's perhaps been seen in some instrumental analyses of modern data. But what the tree rings are telling us also is that, well, there's this trend towards increased wetness over the eastern Eastern North America has been going on for some time. So that's an amazing thing. And then, of course, you know, we can reinterpret our own history vis-a-vis, you know, the tree ring reconstructed climate record. And the height of our fame was with the publication of our article in 1998, you know, in Science Magazine about the lost colony in Jamestown drought. So it's an amazing coincidence that Sir Walter Raleigh's lost colony of Roanoke Island disappears in 1587, 
which was the worst drought in 800 years, so say the tree ring. So, you know, we don't know that they died of thirst. We're not seeing that. But, you know, the tree rings say that the colonization, the early English colonization of America was beset by serious drought. And somehow that must have impacted their success or failure, their failure at, at Lost Colony and the hardships suffered at Jamestown. Yeah, it certainly paints a little more context into what we know about that, and that is just deeply, truly fascinating. How much uh, time out of the year are you spending in the field taking samples and exploring ancient forests? Well, I'm about to go on a field trip uh, next week, but usually it's on the order of you know, two or three weeks a year. Are you going anywhere you want to talk about? Well, we're going to go, of course, in Cyprus. One of the advantageous things that's happened with the publication of this article, with the press conference that about Black River, about the old trees at Black River, North Carolina, Nature Conservancy held a press conference. I mean, people have shown interest in this. There have been, you know, there have been uh, donations of money to help the Nature Conservancy and should mention that, you know, what is the Nature Conservancy after all? It's the 22,000 members in North Carolina that are members of the Nature Conservancy that support the cause of the Nature Conservancy, which is to preserve nature. And so they support that uh, with donations, with membership, membership subscriptions, and so forth. And it is that support that TNC uses in order to try to preserve land at Black River and elsewhere in North Carolina. So we're hoping that the publicity surrounding these findings will help in ultimately in the salvation and preservation of the Black River. Right, and the I other think thing that the I'm uh, sorry. no, that's I've got. I'm running out of time, so I've got to interrupt you for a second. But I, I will reiterate that the Nature Conservancy has been crucial. They they have purchased thousands of uh, acres of land around um, some of these sites. But as you have noted in your work, there is. It, this space is much, much bigger than originally thought. There's a lot of land that still needs to be preserved and a lot of you know, money, resources, and attention that needs to be paid in order to get that done and make sure that these trees are protected. So I appreciate it very much that you've come on to talk to us today, and good luck with your work going forward, sir. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Okay, we are headed to a break. You are listening to WNCU-FM. That was Dr. David Staley from the University of Arkansas. He discovered the oldest known tree in eastern North America. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is The Dirt on WNCU-FM. I am your host, Brian Powell. Look for us on Twitter at the Dirt FM. Now, wherever you are right now, you are probably just a few feet away from a trash can or inches away from something you're going to throw into a trash can pretty soon. And a reminder, all of that garbage doesn't just disappear into thin air. Uh, We don't put it onto spaceships and shoot it into the sun. We bury it. It goes out of sight and for too many of us out of mind. Uh, For communities near landfills, it's never out of sight or out of mind. They have to deal with noise, traffic odor, the threat of dangerous contaminants in the air and the water. Nobody wants to live next to everyone else's trash or next to hazardous waste. And there's almost always a fight when a location is chosen to dump trash and waste in a particular location. You're 
probably will not be surprised to learn that more often than not, these dump sites end up being located in communities of color, in low-income communities, or in other areas that have been historically disempowered. And in fact, the modern environmental justice movement began in Warren County, North Carolina, back in the 70s, over the issue of dumping and burying extremely toxic PCBs. So I'm very pleased to speak today with Ms. Dolly Burwell. She was a heroine and pioneer of the environmental justice movement and the fight against that landfill. She was one of the core protesters in Warren County at the time the state began the development of the PCB landfill there. She contributed to a long fight against the placement of the land, of the landfill and, and later to ensure its detoxification. I want to share with you our conversation now. So I want to just jump right in. Um, during the course of the, the protests that you helped organize afterwards, you were arrested, I think, five times. Is that right? Five times. Five yeah. times. And there were hundreds of other people who were arrested as well. And many of those people were arrested many, many times for blocking the, the trucks and, and other things, if I recall correctly. Uh, you said recently that without going to jail, uh, you would not have created a movement. And I think building, being willing to break the law, to be cuffed, to be jailed, um, that requires uh, a degree of bravery I'm not sure most people uh, understand or appreciate. I'd like you, if you can, to tell me a little bit more about the role uh, that civil disobedience and, and sacrifice plays in creating change. And, and specifically, can, can meaningful change be made if people aren't willing to make those kinds of sacrifices? Yes, I... I um... I really think, that, you know, being a child of the uh, civil rights movement, um, you know, I was that that grew out of uh, what I knew had to happen in Warren County that people had to make sacrifices, that people had to be arrested in order to um, to gain any kind of success for fighting that uh, PCB dump. I mean, I think that I knew in the beginning that uh, it would not really stop um, the the landfill itself. Um, but I had a bigger picture in mind, and that picture was at the time that we were bl trying to block the trucks from coming in and creating the Warren County PCB landfill. There was a move in the state to... Um, to uh, create a, a a larger landfill, uh, toxic waste dump. Um, I saw Warren County uh, becoming another email Alabama. And so I, I knew that we had to make sacrifices. And being a child of the civil rights movement, being arrested, going to jail, was was my way of of saying that this got to become a movement and just as a civil rights um uh movement and I, in fact the Washington Post really dubbed it uh as the, the largest civil rights movement since the 1960s so i i think that people got to be willing to, to make sacrifice um and and i would say that those of us who were comfortable going to jail those were that that definitely was sacrifices, but I don't want to give people the impression that if you are not comfortable 
being arrested that that you can't in 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 social movements for change you don't have to always go to jail you know you can march you can attend meetings whatever your comfort level allows you to do to be a part of that movement and making those sacrifices i think that's what you need to do and you one of the the times that you were arrested i believe your daughter was present. She was, I think, 10 years old at the time. And, and you saw her getting arrested. Is that right? Yes, I was. I was it was actually the, the very first day of the, uh, that, that the trucks was going to start putting, um, bringing the soil to Warren County. Uh, we had sort of um, made plans to um, those of us who was going to get arrested, we was going to do a march from the um, Coley Spring Baptist Church to the landfill. And, and of course, as in most movements, you have to plan uh, who's going to get arrested and how that is going to um, turn out. And so I have really gotten her ready to go to school. Um, and I thought she was – as Every other morning at a certain time would go to the bus and I would go to the door and make sure she got on the bus. So when I went to, uh, after I had got dressed and went to make sure she was leaving out of the house to go to the bus, she was still sitting on the, on the sofa. So I said to her, um, you know, come on, you know you know, don't miss your bus, let's get on the bus. And she said, I'm not going to school today, I'm going with you to the march. And, you know, as a mother, I knew that those trucks would be bringing toxic waste. And I knew that we were going to block the trucks. And I didn't know if there was going to be an accident because, or, or, you know, truck could have turned over. I didn't really want her, um, you know, to – my mother – my motherly instincts kicked in, and I said, well, Kim, you, you shouldn't do this. And she said, no, I don't want you to do this. You you have to go to school. And she basically said, well, Mom, if you're going to do it, why can't I do it? And so when I thought about it, you know, I didn't want to tell her, even at age 10, that she shouldn't stand up for what she believed in. So I... Um, capitulated and we talked about it and she said well if I get arrested I know I'm as a juvenile if I get separated from you I can call my aunt I can call my daddy and we had a plan we developed a plan but even with that plan when I got arrested and when I was on the paddle wagon and I looked out the one and I saw all the reporters around her and I saw her crying I really didn't know what what was happening with her. I thought she had just gotten scared. And later on, in, in fact, I didn't get out of jail that day until really, really late in the afternoon. Um, but the plan worked because she called her daddy. He came and picked her up. And uh, when I got out of, out of uh, jail that night, I was turned the TV on, and I saw her on the national news. And she was saying she was not afraid of going to jail, but she was afraid of what the toxic waste may do to her family and friends. 
and she was afraid that they were going to get cancer because they asked her if she was afraid because she was crying. And um, so that sparked a lot of uh, students from UNC and Chapel Hill and Durham and other places to to join the movement uh, and come and protest with us. That's incredible. Uh, you mentioned that you were marching uh, from Coley Springs and, and with the congregation there. Uh, I understand that the faith community, uh, specifically that congregation, the United Church of Christ as well, they played a, a very primary role in bringing affected people together um, and helping to organize some of this resistance. And, and I know that you've, you've written before that you felt it was important to bring the faith community into the organizing process, in part in order to move some people away from responding to these events with violence. Uh, yes, yes. Tell me about yes. tell me about the, the that, threats. That, yeah, that, yeah, that for me was was very important. Again, um, uh, uh, being a, a child of the civil rights movement, I, and having a brother who had uh, maybe six or eight years before the toxic waste was dumped, had relocated to Warren County, bought property, and began. Um, a cattle farm in Warren County, and all he could see was, you know, his his livelihood being interrupted. And he basically said to me, "The first the first truck that I see coming in here, I am going to take care of it." And I knew he meant in a violent way, and so I had to do my best to talk to him and convince him that we could make progress through nonviolent civil disobedience and that that was the way um, the civil rights movement gained um, progress and that he had to trust the faith community and trust us to um, build a movement that would not cause him to lose his livelihood. And so it was very important for me. And I knew that in order to keep it from being nonviolent, um, and out of the 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 500 uh, plus arrests that was made, they were all made uh, from nonviolent civil disobedience. None of the arrests was made Another those 500 plus arrests was made from someone being violent now. And the other reason why I knew that it would, if we didn't bring the faith community in, that it would become violent because um, a few weeks, or maybe three weeks, while they were constructing the landfill and they had put in this liner, the landfill was vandalized. And, you know, someone had went in and just cut up the liner. And and so I knew the state was uh, determined to build a landfill. I don't even think they um, they replaced the whole line. I think they patched it up. And I think the the um, even though we knew that landfill was going to leak, I think the reason it leaked when it did uh, as soon as it did was because the liner was um, not sufficient 
in the first place, but because it had been previously vandalized. So I knew that if we didn't bring the faith community in and people could come and march and get out their frustrations and 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 trust um the faith community to lead that that it would it would would have definitely become violent. Do you think that the I mean I'm looking around the landscape today and there are so many uh, environmental justice issues, environmental issues, social justice issues uh, that people are fighting for. Uh, do you do you think that today, environmental activists and communities of faith are are working together as powerfully and impactfully as they did 40 years ago? And, and if not, how how can we do it better? Well, I, I think they are. I I really do think they are. Um... I, I think in terms of national attention, I think because our country, the way it is now, and with the leadership from in, in many of our state houses as well as nationally, it's so much, you know, it's so much wrong, <laughs> you know, and it's so many, you have to fight for so many different things. Um, I think that, that, the national attention is not on these local communities that are fighting in, within their own community with faith-based groups. But I, I do think that um, I know. I mean, I do think that that communities that are working on social issues uh, are working hand in hand with the faith community. I, I just think because of of um, our country and the atmosphere in which we find ourselves in today, that the, the the national media have so much more to focus on. Thank you. I'll I'll ask one last thing. Um, where do you where do you think the environmental justice justice movement uh, is today? Um, after these many decades, or is it headed in the right direction? Is it in a healthy place? Is it where where are we at? Well, I wouldn't say, I think if the environmental justice movement is at one of those ebbs, uh, I think from from a national perspective. But I do think that um, uh, last, a week before last, I think I attended um, a, a, a conference um, at, at Duke, and I saw how... Um, People uh, across, the, it was a national conference, and I saw folks from Alabama that was talking about sanitation and water, and 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 people from New Jersey, you know. And then I I, I went to a roundtable on um, community networking, and I saw the young people that was was in in policy, um, uh, environmental policy classes. And so you, you, you and I, and, and where I was, it was very inspiring for me. So I think while you, while you don't hear about environmental justice, uh, again, um, like Warren County in 1982, I think, that you got communities still working to make change 
and 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 I think that with a lot of the environmental policies being rolled back, it could really do uh, cause people to be not so hopeful. Uh, so I think those of us who who have the opportunity to encourage and to go to communities and speak, and, and those of us who who uh, at times were not so hopeful uh, in Warren County, it, it's part of our our role to try to keep people hope, hopeful and keep the you know keep keep the pressure on and and and, and show people how it got to be the political. And voting is all intertwined, and even the rollback of environmental policy and environmental justice policies, we got to connect that to what's happening at at the ballot box and, and, and make changes. All right. I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for talking to us, Ms. Burwell. Thank you so much. Okay, we are officially out of time. You've been listening to Dolly Burwell on The Dirt, WNCU-FM. The Dirt is underwritten by the North Carolina Conservation Network. North Carolina Conservation Network has just released the 2019 State of the Environment report. Go to ncconservationnetwork.org to read the report and learn more about how our state is doing when it comes to public health, clean water, clean air, wildlife, storm resiliency, and much more. Follow NC Conservation on Twitter, for more information about that and look for this show on Twitter at the Dirt FM. Until next time, be good y'all.